0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, June 5th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. New ocean just dropped, and a new dinosaur species, big release day. So all about the fifth ocean and one of the newest, largest dinosaurs, Plus, what a new serial says about current marketing trends, the state of serial as a whole, fan-franchise relationships, and the contemporary fusion of ancient folklore. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's World Ocean Day, and National Geographic is celebrating by announcing a new ocean. Kind of. So growing up, you were probably taught that there are four oceans, the Pacific, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Arctic. But if you work in certain scientific fields, or perhaps depending on where you were educated, you know that there's a fifth, the Southern Ocean. The International Hydrographic Organization, or IHO, has been responsible for naming and delineating seas and oceans since 1919. The Southern Ocean was included as an ocean in their first publication in 1928, and in subsequent editions, though with the ocean's borders being pushed further and further south until they removed it altogether in 1953. The IHO said in the 1953 edition, quote, the Antarctic, or Southern Ocean, has been omitted from this publication as the majority of opinions received since the issue of the second edition in 1937 are to the effect that there exists no real justification for applying the term ocean to this body of water, the northern limits of which are difficult to lay down owing to their seasonal change. The limits of the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian oceans have therefore been extended south to the Antarctic continent." Hydrographic offices who issue separate publications dealing with this area are therefore left to decide their own northern limits, end quote. Though the matter has been revisited a number of times, most significantly in the year 2000, the IHO has yet to come to an agreement from its members and the Southern Ocean has not been formally reinstated by the IHO. But some authorities around the world do recognize it, like Australia and the US Board on Geographic Names, and as of February of this year, the US's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. So now, National Geographic has decided to formally recognize the Southern Ocean as well. That's really more of a style guide type of decision than any big matter, but I found it interesting nonetheless, and National Geographic took the opportunity to explain a little more about the features of the Southern Ocean. While the other oceans are defined by the continents that fence them in, the Southern Ocean is defined by a current. Scientists estimate that the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, or ACC, was established roughly 34 million years ago, when Antarctica separated from South America. That allowed for the unimpeded flow of water around the bottom of the Earth. The ACC flows from west to east around Antarctica, in a broad, fluctuating band roughly centered around a latitude of 60 degrees south, the line that is now defined as the northern boundary of the Southern Ocean. Inside the ACC, the waters are colder and slightly less salty than ocean waters to the north. Extending from the surface to the ocean floor, the ACC transports more water than any other ocean current. It pulls in waters from the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, helping drive a global circulation system known as the conveyor belt, which transports heat around the planet. Cold, dense water that sinks to the ocean floor off Antarctica also helps store carbon in the deep ocean. In both those ways, the Southern Ocean has a crucial impact on the Earth's climate. End quote. And human-driven climate change could be warming the water that's moving through the ACC. This potential impact on Antarctica and the environment overall is part of why National Geographic made the decision to formally recognize the Southern Ocean to raise awareness of conservation efforts. Because, you know, we can quibble about boundaries of the oceans, but like marine biologist and National Geographic explorer at large Sylvia Earle says, there is but one interconnected ocean. And we've got to take care of it. Like the tagline for World Ocean Day says, one ocean, one climate, one future together. A new dinosaur, identified in Australia, is among the largest dinosaur species ever discovered, and the largest ever discovered in Australia. The Australotitan Cuperensis, also called the Southern Titan, or if you're in a whimsical mood, the Terrible Lizard of Oz, was a Titanosaurian sauropod that would have been between 5 to 6.5 meters tall and 25 to 30 meters long. In other words, about the length of two buses or a basketball court and two stories tall. Sauropods are the long-necked, plant-eating dinosaurs, you know, like Littlefoot in the land before time, and this particular one is estimated to have lived during the Cretaceous period about 90 million years ago, when Australia was still one large landmass with Antarctica. The Australotitan's bones were initially discovered back in 2007 on a farm in Aromanga, Queensland, a town whose name you don't want to google without including the province. But it took over a decade for the fossils to be properly classified, comparing it to those of other known species and making estimates on its size and other details. The process was complicated by how remote the location of the bones was and how massive and delicate they are, making transportation difficult, so they heavily relied on 3D scans of the Australotitan's bones, which they could take to various museums around the country on a laptop. And the New York Times notes that Australia is one of the most difficult places in the world to find dinosaurs because, quote, it is mostly flat and lacks the mountain ranges and canyons that would expose fossils by eroding rock, end quote. So Australia has only really gotten into the fossil hunting game over the past couple of decades, and paleontologists are hoping this discovery will kick off a wave of titanosaur-sized discoveries in Australia. Four sauropods that lived during the Cretaceous period, including the Australotitan, have so far been found in Australia. Writing in the conversation, the lead author of the new study identifying Australotitan cooperensis, Scott Hocknell, said, quote, We found all four of the sauropod dinosaurs were more closely related to one another than they were to other dinosaurs found elsewhere. However, we couldn't conclusively place any of these four related species together in the same place at the same time. This means they could have evolved through time to occupy very different habitats. It's even possible they never met. The Aussie species share relations with Titanosaurians from both South America." America." America and Asia, suggesting they dispersed from South America via Antarctica during periods of global warmth. Or they may have island hopped across ancient island archipelagos which would eventually make up the present-day terrains of Southeast Asia and the Philippines." It's an exciting time in dinosaur country in Australia, where the Australotitan and subsequent discoveries in Aromanga have led to the creation of the Aromanga Natural History Museum, where the fossils are displayed and studied, a huge boon for education, science, and tourism in a small town in the Australian outback. Perhaps you've heard about John Oliver's latest beef with a random entity. This time, he's going after Cheerios. At the end of May, Last Week Tonight posted a 7-minute web exclusive about cereal, and how boring it's become. Oliver points to major cereal developments of yore, like the introduction of Trix's Wildberry Blue, a two-toned corn puff literally marketed as uniting kids across political aisles in 1996, as well as the introduction of Reese's Puffs as a whole in 1994. But, Oliver claims, there haven't been any major serial stories that have broken through to mainstream headlines in a positive way since then. In his words, serials aren't even trying anymore. That's when he picked on Cheerios, in particular, for having the most boring online brand ever, as he said, quote, "...they fully submitted to the worst toothless impulses that dominate positivity Twitter." End quote. And encouraging them to spice things up, Oliver said he would donate $25,000 to the charity of Cheerios Choice if they tweeted F.U. from their official accounts. Only he meant the real four-letter word, which he can say on HBO, but I can't on a non-explicit podcast. Cheerios replied in a tweet the next day, saying, quote, You know we're a family brand, so we can't drop the F-bomb. We'll donate $50,000 to No Kid Hungry, and we'll also donate $50,000 to the charity of your choice if you tweet, Families make good go round, end quote. Which was one of their tweets in particular that Oliver thoroughly roasted. But last week tonight replied in kind a few days later with the requested, Families make good go round, and a photo of the Manson family. The show then followed it up with a series of tweets of other controversial families, including the Menendez brothers, and then they also donated an additional $50,000 to No Kid Hungry, the real winners in this whole scenario. So a fun little exchange and money well spent, but it still proved Oliver's larger points. Cheerios couldn't get too edgy on Maine Cereal has become boring. In its marketing and in the actual product, Oliver threw out some jokes that honestly were genuinely good ideas. Things like cereal shaped like little people so you can pretend you're a giant, nighttime snack-themed cereal, Lego cereal, cereal for goth kids, and blue golden grams. Okay, maybe not that last one. But the rest of which, however, are reminiscent of the chaotic energy at play in the era that brought us oops all berries. Because the thing is, even when big cereal companies come out with something new now, it's not that good. Back in April, General Mills announced a new Ghostbusters cereal for the upcoming Ghostbusters Afterlife movie, and Gizmodo ripped it to shreds. The critiques mostly came from how boring and poorly designed the three different cereal elements were. Red corn puff balls that are basically kicks, blobby white marshmallows meant to be ghosts that barely looked like ghosts, and blue marshmallow blobs that they claim is ectoplasm, but Gizmodo believes is supposed to be a new blue slimer-like ghost that's gonna feature in the new film, but that the serial couldn't specify because the studio wouldn't let them, so it's just a twisted mess of corporate hellscape in a cardboard box. Further, Gizmodo compared this to another Ghostbusters cereal from 1985 that Gizmodo alleges did way better. It also had marshmallow ghosts, but they were better defined, and the corn pieces were in the shape of circular no signs to match the logo. Now, I'm not falling too hard into a camp here on which Ghostbusters cereal is better, but the passionate reaction from at least this one journalist lines up with John Oliver's point. Cereal got boring. And in rare cases where you could argue it isn't boring, it's just not breaking through to the mainstream news or zeitgeist. Now, to General Mills's credit on the current Ghostbusters cereal, it is being sold for normal prices on grocery store shelves, even if for a limited time. You can still find it on Walmart and Kroger's websites, at least. And I say this is to their credit because this is one reason I personally think that some of the innovation and excitement when it happens in cereal no longer breaks through to the mainstream. The limited edition products are often not something that everyone will find in their grocery stores. You have to enter a sweepstakes or pre-order it for twice as much as you'd pay for a normal box. And this isn't just a thing with cereal. So many brands are doing this. It seems like an excuse to get a bunch of play on social media and some earned media without actually having to create a mass supply of a new product. So, alright, I get it. And honestly, it's probably the smarter move for these companies because the other reason it doesn't break through the noise? There is too much noise. Too much has been done before, and too much is always happening. You're not going to have the entire country searching for a gray M&M like in 1997. It is so much harder to get a return on investment with stuff like that these days, so it does make sense to go to the niche audiences, people who will pay more money, and therefore you will definitely sell it all to the exact audience you want to and make back whatever money you put into it. But it doesn't become a cultural touchstone that way. It barely goes beyond the filter bubbles of the people already interested. And let's look at a recent case study that is really what got me all riled up about this. General Mills' limited edition Loki charms. The new Thor spinoff series from Marvel will premiere on Disney Plus tomorrow, Wednesday the 9th, so Lucky Charms has gone dark and become Loki Charms. And I have a lot of thoughts. Not all negative, either. I think this is pretty cool. But let's start with how they're pulling the niche audience card. Here's how to get your hands on a box of Loki Charms, quoting CNET. Fans will need to visit the mischievouslydelicious.com website on Wednesday to buy a box. The pre sale opens at 6 a.m. Pacific for participants who correctly guess the encryption password. You'll have to check the site to try your hand at figuring out the password. The regular sale for passwordless people starts at 8 a.m. Pacific. According to comicbook.com, the cereal will cost $8 per box and only 3,500 boxes will be available. End quote. And further, get this, the cereal didn't even change. No redesigned Loki or Marvel themed marshmallows, although CNET had a great suggestion for Infinity Stone marshmallows. No, the cereal inside the box looks exactly the same. It's just a paint job on the box, a black and green redesign that features cartoonified Loki on the front and a photo of Tom Hiddleston as Loki on the side. Which, I mean, of course, you're not going to redesign all the marshmallows or oat shapes when you're only releasing 3,500 boxes. And I guess you don't want to take such a big risk on Loki charms to do a major rollout. Or maybe Disney only paid you enough for a glorified social media campaign and not an actual serial collaboration. Whatever the reason, considering how cool it genuinely looks and how good the joke is, I'm a bit sad at the lost potential. But let's talk about that joke. Lucky Charms to Loki Charms. That joke has been around for years. Tons of people replied to the serial announcement tweet showing off the fan art that they'd made or bought over the years with the same joke on it. Now, I'm not saying that General Mills intentionally ripped off this low-hanging fruit of a joke from fans, though Like, I wouldn't be shocked if they did, but it's just not the most original idea, so another tick in the not-super-innovative box. The relationship between fans and franchises is a fraught one, in which you can easily get lost in the swamps of fair use, but it's something that becomes much more relevant when you start making limited editions specifically and arguably solely for superfans. This cereal is not going on the shelves to the masses. The people who are going to take the time to wake up early and crack that encrypted passcode to pre-order an $8 box of cereal have probably seen half a dozen variations on the Loki charms joke over the past decade. Still, there is a certain thrill when the franchise takes a fan joke and bestows it with the authority of an official product. But there was one more thing that stuck with me when I saw the commercial that Lucky Charms put together for the serial, which goes along with the idea of who owns these characters anyways. In the commercial, we see Lucky the Leprechaun reciting his usual line about the shapes of marshmallows while hopping around in a rainbow-bedecked field and creating a portal that he exits through. As soon as he's gone, a Lucky Charmsified cartoon version of Marvel and Disney's Loki appears in a puff of smoke with ominous backing music. He delivers the amended tagline, they're mischievously delicious, and then turns the classic red Lucky Charms box into one better befitting his personal brand. Lucky the Leprechaun has been usurped by the ultimate trickster. Now, Loki, as much as this iteration is a Disney property now, is a real god from Norse mythology, and Lucky is a Leprechaun, an Americanized and stereotypical version of the original supernatural being from Irish folklore. Both leprechauns as a whole, and Loki himself, tend to be associated with the trickster archetype, an archetype that includes other figures from mythologies around the world like Anansi, Cocopelli, Reynard the Fox, and Hermes or Mercury. But there's another figure that is occasionally associated with the trickster archetype, Luke, one of the major gods in Irish mythology, with massive apologies to the Irish for my pronunciation. Now, the trickster side of things only comes out in some interpretations, mostly in later folklore. He's more of a warrior king, sometimes compared to Apollo. But if you do a cursory search online, you can find tons of comparisons between Luke and Loki. Yeah. Really, some people point to a lot of similarities in their parentage, usage of spears in key battles, association with lightning, and more to say that perhaps they are cut from the same cloth. One person even points to the influence of the Celts on the Norse in the early Iron Age to say that Loki may have been created as the Norse version of Luke. But there's not much to back any of that up and lots of disagreement on interpretations. There are so many different versions of both gods, and Luke especially got the Victorian treatment of having a lot of his origin and meaning retconned to their liking, so the connection here is probably not a genuine one, but even the fact that some people believe there is a connection makes the placement of Loki inside this animated, Americanized version of Irish folklore kind of fascinating. Two archetypes of the mythological trickster corporatized to mere shells of their folk origins duking it out in the name of toasted oat pieces and marshmallow bits. Now in the same way that I'm not sure the people who came up with the concept of Loki charms had ever seen any of the fan art making the same joke, I also don't know that anyone in the advertising room was really thinking about the deep origins of the two characters they were bringing to the screen. But like with all art, their intentions don't entirely matter what we take from it is what ultimately matters for each of us. And while I won't be signing up on some website to pay 8 bucks for a limited edition cereal, though General Mills take note that if this were available on the shelf at my local grocery store, I absolutely would have bought a box, possibly even a few, but I did get a lot out of this 25 second spot. It's in no way the chaotic, innovative cereal we saw in decades past, but for me at least, Loki charms are anything but boring. Well, that is it for today. Long episode today. If you're still here, thanks for sticking around through my whole serial rant. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and conkey.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.